On today's story session, we've got two stories in one episode. This is Hair Corbs and The Godfather. My name is Zach Stewart, and these are the Shadow Bear Story Sessions. Welcome to the Shadow Bear Story Sessions, the podcast about how brutally dark and totally insane folktales and fairy tales used to be, which in my opinion just made them way better and more entertaining. So I've got the most true to the original version of Grimace Fairy Tales that I could find, and we're going through it front to back, story by story. We'll figure out the difference between the lessons the story thinks it's teaching and the lessons it's actually teaching, and at the end of each episode, I'll adapt the tale into a movie or TV show. Let's get right to it with today's tale titled, Hair Corbs. We begin. Once upon a time, there was a little hen and a little rooster who wanted to take a trip together. So the little rooster built a beautiful wagon with four red wheels and hitched four little mice to it. Okay, even for a carriage tiny enough to fit a hen and a rooster, mice seem way too small for this. Could four mice even pull a carriage on its own? Mice are not very strong. If you're trying to pull a carriage for a rooster, I mean, I'd say you'd need four gerbils, at least. Maybe squirrels. Nothing smaller than squirrels. Chipmunks and mice, too small. Maybe you could get away with four rats if they were like those terrifying New York monster rats. But mice, no. No dice. No mice. We continue. Then the little hen climbed into the wagon along with the rooster, and this is how they drove off. Soon they came across a cat, who asked, Where are you going? We're off to see Herr Corbs today. We're off without delay. Take me with you, said the cat. Gladly, answered the little rooster. Sit in the back so you won't fall off in front. Okay, well now four mice definitely couldn't pull this carriage. Four mice... Are, are not strong enough to pull the weight of a cat alone. Let alone a whole carriage plus a hen and a rooster and a cat. This carriage is not moving. This carriage is stationary. Get the cat to pull. The cat could take care of this no problem. Why, why, why are you wearing these mice out? We continue. Be sure to take good care, for I've got clean red wheels down there. Roll on, you wheels, hi-ho. Squeak, squeak, you mice, hi-ho. We're going to see her corbs today. We're off without delay. There's a very long, meandering, elaborate song. Doesn't really say anything. We continue. Soon a millstone came, followed by an egg, a duck, a pin, and a sewing needle, who all got into the wagon and rode along. I just feel sad for these mice at this point. I mean, one of these things was literally a rock. That millstone, that's just a fucking rock. These mice must be incredible athletes. Or they're on some crazy mice steroids or something. Also, why does everyone want to visit Herr Corbs? This guy is real popular amongst random animals and inanimate objects. However, when they arrived at Herr Corbs' house... He wasn't there. The little mice pulled the wagon into the barn. The little hen and the little rooster flew up on a perch. 
The cat settled down on the hearth. The duck took a place by the well sweep. The egg wrapped itself in a towel. The egg was kind of in a spa kind of mood. The pin stuck itself in a chair cushion. The sewing needle jumped on the bed right into the pillow. And the millstone climbed to the top of the door. When Herr Korbs came home, he went to the hearth to make a fire. But the cat threw ashes right into his face. He ran quickly into the kitchen to wash the ashes off, but the duck splashed water in his face. Isn't that kind of what he wants, anyway? As he tried to dry himself with the towel, the egg rolled toward him and broke open so that his eyes became glued shut. Now he wanted to rest and sit down in the chair, but the pin stuck him. This made him very irritated, so he went and lay down in his bed, but the sewing needle stuck him just as his head hit the pillow. He became so angry and mad that he wanted to run out of the house. Just as he got through the front door, however, the millstone jumped down and killed him. The end. Okay, so all of these inanimate objects basically just assembled together to ambush and attack this man. They really made it seem like, oh, we're all going on a jaunty trip to go visit our old pal, Herr Korbs. No, they're going to straight up murder this guy. This was an assassination party. This series of events does not sound like they were all surprised and accidentally hurt the guy. They did this intentionally. It's, it straight up says the cat threw ashes right into his face. You don't do that by accident. Then the duck splashes him with water. And that seems harmless, and it's, 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 it's what the guy was trying to do anyway, wash his face. The egg in the face, that could have been an accident, but why did the egg go there to begin with? It's got no reason to be there unless it's laying a trap. And lastly, it doesn't say the millstone fell. It says the millstone jumped. So the millstone definitely, intentionally murdered this guy. And I guess the hen and the rooster just watched all of this in horror, or maybe in approval. Maybe they were the ringleaders of this little band. They got everyone together. Or maybe they wanted to visit their friend and everyone else is like, hey, we'll come too. And then all those people who joined up fucking murdered the guy. I'll be honest, I have no idea what the intended lesson of this story is. But the first lesson that I'm taking from this, which is a lesson I think everyone should follow, is that if you get invited to a party or invited along somewhere, or if you have plans with a friend... Don't bring along a bunch of extra people. Don't be the guy who shows up to a party and is like, hey, I brought like eight friends. Hope that's cool. It's like, no, Rodney, that's not cool. It was going to be a small group of close friends, and now you've brought half your fucking water polo team. Now we don't have enough food or drinks for everyone, and we have to listen to these idiots tell inside jokes and be jerks to everyone all night. So that's the lesson I'm taking from this. If you're going to bring extra people to a hangout, to a party... Run it by the host, or the people you're hanging out with, first. They should have run all of this by Herr Korbs, so he's prepared for, for them. Sometimes it's fine, but you gotta run this shit by the group. Otherwise, the random friends just might end up murdering someone, like in this story. The cautionary tale of Herr Korbs and the uninvited extra guests. So that was a pretty short story, and that's why we've got two stories this week. So we'll also do two quick hitter adaptations. And this one is definitely going to be a movie at most. Possibly even a short film. 
What I'm picturing is essentially a surprise party gone wrong. So we'll have a guy whose girlfriend organizes a surprise party for his 30th birthday. And the first part of the movie is just the guests, his family and friends, everyone gradually gathering at the house. And the girlfriend used his address book and recent contacts to invite people because they have a relatively new relationship, so she doesn't know all of his friends yet. And because of this, we, we've got a rather eclectic group of people that show up. She doesn't know everyone that she's inviting. And we'll have his actual friends and family, of course, but the girlfriend also accidentally invites his ex-girlfriend, who he just kind of disappeared on, so she's super bitter about that. And she also invites a previous coworker who has some beef with him because he thinks the boyfriend got him fired. And among the friends, there's a friend who got way too high and is tripping on acid, and a couple other friends that are super broy and just get really drunk before the party. So the first act of the movie is all of these people just gradually assembling. And then when the birthday boy arrives, all hell breaks loose. This is actually reminding me of the, the movie Death at a Funeral, but sort of the twist. So the rest of the movie is just the birthday boy and his girlfriend trying to navigate all these people and obstacles to keep everyone happy while the guests have outbursts and make scenes and cause trouble. And now this is a really short story, and the adaptation is more of a general premise than a full beat-by-beat breakdown. It would take a lot of time, probably get pretty tedious for you all to listen to that, because it would take some pretty intricate choreography as to all these characters gradually interacting, and then the different conflicts simmering, and then one by one coming to fruition. So I'm just going to go right on ahead to the next story, The Godfather. I'm guessing it will be different from the famous mafia movie, but who knows? Maybe Grimm's Fairy Tales was way ahead of its time in ways we had no idea. We begin. A poor man had so many children that he had already asked everyone in the world to be godfather after he had yet another child, so there was nobody left to ask. Man, I love it when they just start off on some crazy shit like this. So we've got this guy who is a sex machine, and he's poor. So you know he's just really got it going on in every other way if he's having all of this crazy sex, and he's poor. Considering that pregnancy lasts nine months, it would be impossible for all of those children to be with one woman. This guy is just traveling the world, banging everybody. And you'd think there would be some problems that would come along just with that, such as... Other men getting pissed off that this one guy is impregnating entire cities of women. But apparently, no. His only concern here is that he's run out of people to ask to be godfather. So I guess he's refusing to have godmothers. Or there just can't be any godmothers because he's banging all of them and making them regular mothers. So he's so irresistible to women that he is impregnating giant swaths of the population. But he's also misogynistic enough to refuse to allow a woman to be the godparent of his children. But that would also mean he's asking men to be godfather of children he's having with women all over the place. So he's probably impregnating people's girlfriends and wives all over the place and then asking local men to be the godfather, which is bold as hell. I mean, this guy's got balls. I guess he'd have to if he's the sort of guy that's having such insane amounts of sex. Okay, we're like two sentences into this story, and I'm already on a huge tangent. But how can I not be? I am fascinated by this protagonist. All right, we continue. He became so distressed that he'd lay down and fell asleep. 
Then he dreamt that he was to go outside the town gate and ask the first person he met to be godfather. So that's what the man did. He went out in front of the gate and asked the first man he met to be godfather. The stranger gave him a little bottle of water and said, With this water you can cure the sick when death stands at the sick person's head. But when death stands at the sick person's feet, the patient must die. Okay, what, what's happening here? It's a pretty big twist here. This guy was just looking for a godfather for his kid. And now he has the ability to cure people from the brink of death? I also don't know how you can tell where death is standing in relation to the dying person. Death is more of a whole body kind of issue. Also, did this stranger agree to be the godfather? We don't even get an answer from him. He gets asked to be godfather and is immediately like, Never mind about your millions of children. I'm giving you magic water. We continue. Now, one day the king's child became sick, and death stood at the child's head. So the man cured him with the water. The second time that the king's child became sick, the man cured him again, because death was standing at the head. But the third time, death was standing at the foot of the bed. And the child had to die. <laughs> wonder if that read on the mic. That was my stomach clearly being concerned that the child had to die. Later, the man went to the godfather to tell him about everything. When he climbed the stairs in the house and reached the first landing, he encountered a shovel and a broom quarreling with each other. This story takes so many random, weird twists and turns. Right when you think it's focused on one thing, you come across some crazy, random nonsense. Think it's about godfathers? Nope, magic water. Think it's about saving dying people? Nope, household objects are fighting now. We continue. The man asked where the godfather lived, and the broom replied, One flight higher. When he came to the second landing, he saw a bunch of dead fingers lying there, and asked once again where the godfather lived. One flight higher, replied one of the fingers. On the third landing, there was a pile of skulls, who told him once again, one flight higher. Alright, if I was visiting someone I'd only ever met once, and while walking through their house I passed by piles of human body parts, I'm leaving immediately. I'm not going to be like, oh, he's probably just on a different floor. Well, up I go. On the fourth landing, he saw some fish sizzling in a pan over a fire. They were frying themselves and also told him one flight higher. After he had climbed to the fifth floor, he came to the door of a room and looked through the keyhole. There he saw the godfather who had a pair of long, long horns. Oh my god, man, get out of there. You don't have to tell this guy about the king's son. You probably heard about it already because it's the fucking king's son. You don't need to do all this just to tell this guy what happened. He's clearly got a lot going on. Save yourself, man. You got kids to take care of. So, so many kids. Protect yourself. When he opened the door and entered the room... The godfather quickly jumped into the bed and covered himself. Very suspicious. Godfather, the man said. He's probably trying to act real nonchalant. 
When I came to the first landing, a broom and shovel were quarreling. How can you be so simple-minded, said the godfather. That was the servant and the maid, just talking to each other. On the second landing, I saw dead fingers lying about. My goodness, how foolish you are. Those were salsify roots. No idea what salsify roots are. On the third landing, there were skulls lying about. You stupid man, those were cabbage heads. This is, this is super gaslighty. On the fourth landing, I saw fish in a pan frying themselves. Just as he said that, the fish came in and served themselves on a platter. Okay, well, if they come in and serve themselves, he, the guy can't deny that that's what he saw. He knows that's what he saw. It also kind of proves his point that he was right about the first shit. And when I came to the fifth landing, I looked through the keyhole and saw that you had long, long horns. Now that's just not true. What? Okay, the story just ends. There. That's the end. The long-horned man just says, now that's not true, denying that he has long horns, while hiding under the bed or under the covers, which looks like he probably does have pretty long horns if you're literally hiding yourself. But that's the end. So the only thing I can figure is that the Godfather, who I have to assume at this point is the devil, kills the guy at this moment, and that's why it ends. But that's usually not how folktales operate. If the Godfather killed him, it would have said as much. Man, this story is a clusterfuck. The whole Godfather thing that we start with is pretty much irrelevant. It's basically just a reason for the main character to meet this man who gives him the magic water. But then again, I don't know what's irrelevant because it kind of feels like everything is irrelevant. And there are basically three sections of this story, okay? The guy trying to find a Godfather because he's got so, so many kids. The guy using the water to save the king's son before allowing him to die because he has to by the rules of the magic water. And then the guy's journey through this house of horrors after which the godfather is like, nope, none of that happened. And then it's over. So for the intended lesson, I think this story is not really meant to have a hard lesson, like an overt lesson. I think it's instead meant to be just kind of an exploration of death. I think the fact that the main character has so many children is meant to present him as the embodiment of life, probably. He's like the father of all people. And then, of course, the godfather is some embodiment of death, or at least an agent of death in some way. I don't know if it really is the devil, because the godfather doesn't seem to be evil. It says the thing about, like, if death stands at the head, the person lives. If death stands at the feet, they die, which implies a sort of balance, almost like a matter of chance, coin flip sort of thing. Some live, some die. Scales are somewhat even. And then the section about the guy progressing floor by floor through the house. I think that might be walking us through the phases of death. I don't know. I'm just explore I'm, I'm exploring. I'm figuring this out as I go. The first floor with the broom and the shovel fighting. That might represent moving beyond caring about material things or like the material realm or material concerns. And then the passing, the dead fingers, could represent moving beyond physical 
deeds, physical actions, physicality in any sense, and then moving past the heads, could be moving beyond thoughts and mental processes, and then the fish frying themselves. That can maybe signify acceptance and embracing your own death, because the fish then offer themselves to the godfather. So that would line up. And as for the godfather saying, well, that's not true, I'm a bit unsure of that one. Could mean that the godfather is sort of a shapeshifter and be saying that death takes many forms. That's how I'm going to interpret it, at least. This story doesn't really hold together plot-wise from a logical standpoint, but if you really pick it apart metaphorically, you you can get some interesting things, get some interesting stuff. That's why I love these folktales. They're malleable. You can push them and pull them and see different things with them. Just my interpretation will be different from other people's interpretations, and none are any less valid. No interpretations are necessarily wrong here. So this is clearly one of those stories that just kind of gets you, gets you thinking. But as for some blunt lessons that we can take from this story without looking into the deeper analysis, I'm just going to say, don't worry about godparents too much. It's not important. If looking for a godparent leads to all this mess... This is not this is not worth it just to find a godparent for your kid. Also, if you're having so many children that you can't find godparents because they there aren't enough people in the world, then you've got way bigger problems than just finding godparents. Maybe look inward and think about how and why you got to this point as a fucking person. You have a problem. Keep it in your pants, buddy, or at least use a condom. This is the second episode in a row where I've said, use a condom. I don't know if that's on me or the folktales, but let's move on to the adaptation. This is another one of those stories that has to have a certain amount of trippy shit in it, I feel like. I also think we have to abandon any notion of this being realistic. This has to be like a a cartoon or a superhero movie with sort of a suspension of disbelief. Actually, yeah, let's do a stop-motion animation movie. There aren't enough adult stop-motion animation movies. It still takes place in olden times. I'm thinking 1700s, 1800s. So the main character, let's call him Jeff, lives in a farmhouse amidst rolling green pastures surrounded by thousands and thousands of his children. And he's essentially a fertility god. Jeff, the god of fertility. And so women visit him when they can't have children, and he helps them. And he's also completely irresistible to all women. So occasionally he leaves his home in the hills and let's say, quote-unquote, mixes it up with the humans in the human realm. Because gods and goddesses were doing that kind of shit, fucking around with humans and other gods and goddesses all the time in mythology and folklore. Now it's stop-motion animation, so we won't cast the part, but I'm picturing kind of a a Gerard Butler-looking kind of god or something like that. And so one of these excursions that he takes into the human realm, he encounters a woman who he sets his sights on, but when he tries to impress her, she has absolutely no interest in him and is not attracted to him at all. And he's like, what the hell is going on here? And after his failed attempt, which he essentially just falls flat on his face, this woman reveals that she's actually death, and she's visiting the human realm as well. And so they become friends, and after one of Jeff's many thousands of children passes away, Death gives him the magic water and says that if you see me at the sick person's head, then give them the water and they will live. But if I am at their feet, then it is their time, and you must allow them to pass from this life. This is essential to the balance of the world. 
But then one of Jeff's favorite children falls ill, and death is at their feet. So Jeff is desperate and decides to go visit death and plead his case. Now, usually he just meets up with death when they're both in the human realm, but since now he's seeking her out, he has to go to death's home and visit her own realm. And so he arrives at her house, her great mansion, her manor, and has to get across the first floor by evading and dodging all the, all the household items that fly at him and try to attack him. And then he has to get past the second floor by just fist-fighting a bunch of fucking severed hands, which would be pretty damn difficult. It's not really a body to punch. He just has to, like, smack him away and do cool spins and stuff. And then the third floor is just a bunch of severed heads that try to convince him not to go any further. They're like, it's dangerous, and you'll die if you go any farther. And he's like, my children's lives are at stake. I must go on. I do not fear death. And then the severed heads just resort to insults, like, you're a terrible father. And Jeff is like, okay, I might not be the best father. It's difficult to give your kids one-on-one time when you have thousands and thousands and thousands of kids, but I am trying. And the heads are like, your clothes are stupid. And Jeff says, you don't even have clothes. You're just a bunch of heads. And the heads fire back, whatever, you suck. And Jeff's like, I don't suck, you suck. And the heads are like, all right, you can go. And Jeff goes through the last door which is just a bunch of fish jumping into a deep fryer. And one of them turns to Jeff right before he jumps into the hot oil and says, see you soon, Jeff, and gives him a wink and jumps in. And it's just just creepy. It's just creepy with a a, suicidal-looking fish jumping into hot oil and giving you a wink. Creepy. No one wants that. And Jeff reaches Death's door and peers through the keyhole and sees Death, but she looks much more monstrous than, than when she's in the human realm, and she has big horns. But now that he sees Death's true form, something comes over him and he realizes that, that he's in love with Death. It's like similar to, to how women are just naturally drawn to him. Is, is that's, that's what this power is that, that Death now has over, over him. He goes through this door and, and Death initially tries to hide herself. But Jeff is like, no, you're, you're beautiful, Death. I see the true you. And I dare say that I love you, Death. And Death is like... I think I love you too, Jeff. And Jeff says, My child, my child is dying, but death is at her feet. What can I do? And death says, It's all right. Your your child will simply be here with me. But the world of death is still a part of your world, so your child will always be with you. Speak to your child, and, and they will hear. And Jeff is like, My child will be here in this house because this house is... Kind of scary with all the disembodied heads and hands and stuff. I don't think I don't think they'd like it. And Death replies, "Oh no, the dead souls live in in the rolling hills behind the house. It's much nicer there. It's very pretty. The, the house is sort of sort of my thing, you know. I've got a very particular aesthetic when it comes to interior design. And so Jeff and Death live happily together, going between the realms of life and death, visiting all the souls, and they keep the balance of life on Earth, life and death." together in perfect harmony, united as one. And the title of this movie will be Life and Jeff. It might work better if I could replace life with Jeff's character name, since Jeff symbolizes life, but then I'd need a name that rhymes with life. I don't know, Mike? Mike and Death? No, I'm 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 sticking with Life and Jeff. It still works because it's about Jeff's journey as the embodiment of life standing by it life and jeff coming to a theater 
near you. And there we go. That'll do it for this week's story session. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Come on back next week for a story titled The Strange Feast. So next week we'll find out why this feast is so strange. My name is Zach Stewart, and these are the Shadow Bear Story Sessions. Thank you.